0: Hello everyone and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Kaveh Rafi and today I'm delighted to join Guido Parietti to discuss his recent book on the concept of power published in 2022 by Oxford University Press. Guido Parietti is assistant professor of political theory and constitutional democracy at James Madison College, Michigan State University. His research focuses on the analysis of political concepts, their history, and their methodological and normative implications. He has published on diverse topics and authors, including Anna Arendt, Thomas Hobbes, in the European Journals of Political Theory, the European Journals of Philosophy, La Cultura, and among other uh, publications. His current research plans to examine the historical development of the concept of power as well as the use and misuse of theology in political thought. Hi Guido, welcome to the
1: podcast. Hello, thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, it's a pleasure. Uh, let's, let me start off by asking you about yourself, uh, uh, what inspired you to write this book?
1: Yeah, so this book has a very long history in many ways. Uh, There are many streams that converge into the making of this book. Uh, So the most immediate one is that uh, it was my dissertation at Columbia, which I picked uh, as the topic of my dissertation, Uh, however, because it was among the various options that I was contemplating. It was the one I was most uh, prepared uh, to develop. And I was most prepared because I had been thinking about uh, the concept of power for a long time. So as mentioned in the acknowledgement, it really all goes back to a very old uh, seminar that I uh, participated to when in Rome, uh, when we encountered uh, the classic uh, Stephen Luke's book on power. And from there, we looked into the debate a little bit. Then I started to have this uh, nagging uh, feeling that there was uh, some very basic uh, mistake in the way in which uh, the discussion was framed Uh, because it wasn't really about the concept, right? Uh, And then it also intertwined with my longstanding uh, interest uh, for Arendt, uh, was of course uh, big on the question of both power specifically and the meaning of political concepts in general. Um, And it also intersects with my interest uh, or my past interest uh, in the theories of uh, deliberative democracy, which in a way have a sort of blind spot around power and certainly... Don't really engage with the meaning. Uh, and I could go on because there are really very many influences that culminated in the production of this book. Uh, uh, but this is a sort of a medium length version of the explanation of how I came to uh, discuss the concept of power. Uh, and of course, the other big thing is that uh, I also uh, believe that uh, without understanding power, we cannot understand uh, politics. Uh, and therefore, uh, as a scholar of politics, uh, it's an obvious uh, question to ask, uh, uh, what do we mean uh, when we talk about
0: uh, power? Yeah, correct. Um, so um, something that interests me, like at the very beginning of the book, uh, considering the, the, the question of the concept of power, uh, you emphasize uh, on the this approach that's basically uh, the concept of power uh, and this investigation uh, very much relies on ordinary language and you've very much insisted on that. Could you explain why that's very much important uh, to look at these concepts uh, through the lens of uh, natural language?
1: Yeah, I mean, there is a general uh, answer which is valid uh, for most uh ordinary concepts, and that is like, when you're asking a question about a concept, uh, I think you ought to ask uh, what it means uh, amongst uh, people, among real human people. Because otherwise, uh, what you're doing is not inquire the meaning of the concept, uh, but you are instead, uh, in one way or another, creating your own concept, uh, which, to be clear, is an entirely legitimate endeavor, but it is different from uh, trying to understand what we mean when we say something, right? Scholars, uh, particularly scholars of power, but also in general, have this tendency that they think uh, that it's not only fine, but it is obvious that we can just do whatever we want with concepts uh, and uh, it doesn't matter, right? And so there are, even in the literature, there are are even explicit uh, assertions that uh, it really doesn't matter to understand uh, the concept as such, because there are just so many different concepts and everything goes, uh, or maybe not everything goes, but what actually matter is how useful the concepts are. I think this relies on a fundamental misunderstanding uh, of uh, how language work. Because again, there are many occasions in which it is appropriate to define your uh, specific specialized concepts. Uh, Uh, Although it would be better to use specific words uh, for them as well, but there are many contexts in which that's perfectly fine. So when we, I don't know, when we do physics, uh, for example, it's totally fine to have uh, a specific meaning for power that is the, you know, physical quantity that is not necessarily equivalent to what we mean by power in the ordinary language. But that is a different concept and we have to be aware. That it is a different concept, even if it uses the same word. If we lack this awareness, what happens, and what happened uh, in much of the previous debate, uh, is that we drift away from power as as it is understood between uh, regular people, and we start talking about other concepts. Maybe even more important concepts, but different. And so my question is, what do we mean when we talk about power And what we mean when we talk about power in politics, uh, so obviously I have to take heed uh, of what we mean in ordinary language, because that is what matters for uh, the concept, for the effects of the concept uh, in shaping our understanding of politics, right? So this is the most general reason, and the more specific one is about politics, because not only this is true for all concepts, uh, but it is particularly relevant for political concepts, uh, which uh, themselves are important insofar as, the, as they are used uh, between people, right? Uh, not just uh, in the community of uh, scholars. Uh, and so, if we, as the community of scholars, who study politics, uh, decide to limit ourselves uh, to concepts that we have invented, uh, we are sort of condemned to miss our object of study by definition, right? So. There is a general question about how language works, uh, but there is also a more uh, specific issue with politics itself. It is very paradoxical that uh, so many thinkers that have thought about uh, power and politics uh, are so implicitly or explicitly convinced that they can just can just do whatever they want with the concept and it doesn't matter what other people mean by it. That is very strange, very odd. And, and I think instead, uh, we have really to, to start by observing our natural language uh, uh, works, functions, right? That is where meanings uh, are ultimately created. Doesn't I mean that we have to stop there, but we have certainly to start from there. If you want to say something uh, that is meaningful in the community of humans and not just the very small community of political theorists who study power
0: yeah to my understanding when I was reading the the book was like maybe that's why uh power as a concept is very much different than the concept like say mass in physics is power very much uh intertwined with with the practic practice with practical sphere uh and and in, in, in such a way, it's very much entangled with this ordinary practice of every, but part of the everyday and also like the, the political realm per se. Uh, so there is always this idea of ordinary engagement, but not not reducing it to pure instrumentality. I'm not saying that, but it seems that there is a really uh, close relationship, right? Here between the concept and the field of the practice, Uh, am I right in that sense?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't want to go too far uh, in the direction of philosophy of language, which sometimes can lead uh, to excesses or to a sort of fetishism of language, uh, which might be uh, too much. But there is certainly some uh, truth uh, to the idea that uh, concepts, and particularly fundamental concepts such as power, Really informs uh, our way of uh, existing in the world. Uh, And so, yes, uh, we wouldn't even be able to conceive of ourselves as uh, practical beings uh, if we didn't have uh, some uh, idea of power, right? Because uh, being uh, practical, being someone who's capable of acting, uh, uh, is the same as having power, right? Uh, And specifically, having power in the way in which uh, I try to unfold the meaning of it in the book, uh, which is to say, uh, having uh, the uh, possibility to produce effects in the world, uh, but also representing that possibility as a possibility for us. That is what it is uh, to be a practical being. So of course power uh, uh, and our understanding of power is intertwined with everything uh, uh, we do and with everything we think about what we do.
0: Yeah, uh, and, and that's, I think, very very much the, the part really strikes me. Um, uh, and moving on to the chapter one, uh, it's, it gets more clear when you discuss the you know, uh, shortcoming of some, some of these uh, theories, but why, uh, to some extent, they failed to capture perhaps these aspects very much, and then they ended up in circular tautology and uh, so forth. Uh you mentioned, for example, uh Robert Dahl and Stephen Looks. Ah, uh, so can we discuss a little bit about uh, their definition and why do you think, for example, the Dahl's definition that basically he has this definition of power exercised by someone over someone else that's uh is is very circular. And and how do you think it, it can be uh, yes, uh, for sure.
1: So uh, the, the sort of canonical debate around power in the Anglo-American world uh, is the one that starts with Dahl uh, and then proceeds uh, to the second uh, uh, phase of power, and then the third dimension, which is Stephen Luke's, uh, and then it goes from there sometimes with a fourth phase and other various transformations. But it all starts with Dahl, uh, who in the, in the aftermath, after World War II, in, in sort of a reaction against uh, the uh, elitist theories, uh, theorists, theorists uh, that were trying to argue that the, the, basically the US democracy wasn't really that democratic because there was a power elite that controlled uh, most things. Uh, in, in the reaction against that, uh, uh, he studied power and came up with what he thought was uh, a conceptual definition which interestingly wasn't the core of his uh, endeavor. It was just a sort of a preliminary step to get to the more operational definitions uh, that were different and could be used in specific contexts. So he wasn't really even that interested uh, in the conceptual definition as such. It was a sort of a step uh, in his uh, further endeavor uh, to try to give a different picture of how politics worked uh, in uh, uh, the 50s and 60s uh, United States, right? Be that, as it may, uh, uh, um, many people reacted to this definition, tried to say that it wasn't comprehensive enough, uh, that it hid uh, some uh, effects of power, et cetera, et cetera. And so a long debate uh, developed, uh, which then uh, uh, became a sort of the standard starting point uh, for those who want to inquire the meaning of power. Hmm. But it is important to sort of briefly trace the history of this debate because it already shows that It wasn't really about uh, understanding power per se, but it was about the use of the concept to advance uh, different uh, theoretical and political points, right? Which again, it's an entirely legitimate endeavor, but can lead you away from uh, questioning the actual meaning of the concept. Now, outside of the Anglo-American world, uh, in reality, there is of course uh, 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 Max Weber, Famous definition of power, which is in some ways similar to Dahl and was clearly an inspiration, implicit or explicit. Uh, and so, but but it's actually slightly more profound than the one that Dahl gives. But maybe we'll talk about that later, or, or maybe maybe they have to buy the book <laughs> to see what's about that. But then in, in any case. So after this long introduction, what was Dahl's uh, definition of power, which he thought was a conceptual definition? It was that basically a agent a has uh, power over b if uh, a can make b do something that they would not otherwise do uh, and then there was uh, the critique of this the second uh, dim- the second phase uh, of power that says well actually this is all about uh, explicit uh, uh, actions or or omissions but there is a deeper power in the control of the agenda, so whatever issues even gets to be explicitly discussed. And then came uh, Stephen Lukes, uh, who had the third dimension of power, which basically corresponds to the broader dimension of ideological uh, domination. So it's not only about the control of the agenda, but it is about our very capacity to conceive uh, of things that might be hidden or uh, suppressed uh, by a reigning uh, ideology with clearly strong uh, Marxist uh, influences. Um, And so this is all very important and very interesting, but uh, it carries over the basic fundamental mistake of Dahl, which is that uh, A, his definition is not a definition, and B, it's circular. (laughs) It's not a definition because uh, it really is uh, an operational theory of power, even if a very condensed one. Because it doesn't tell us what power means, it only tells us that if we observe that the uh, possibilities of b are hindered by a, then we can infer that a has power over b. So it's a sort of very condensed empirical theory, which tells us if these empirical conditions obtain, then we can diagnose uh, that there is power. But that doesn't tell us what power means. And in fact, uh, it is also circular, because of course, when, it, when, it, when Dahl says, uh, brought uh, A as power over B if A can make B do such and such, that is exactly equivalent to say that A has power over B if A has the power to make B do such and such. And so the can, the word can hides the circularity because of the quirks uh, of the English language, but the circularity is still there. And in fact, uh, I first read uh, this definition in translation uh, and uh, it is almost uh, comical in Italian because in Italian, like in other uh, Romance uh, languages, uh, the noun for power is just the infinitive form uh, of the verb uh, that express uh, uh, possibility, right? And so it's like very, very clearly explicit that A has power if A has power. But even in English, uh, the, 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 the the linguistic uh, uh, sort of the, the, the morphology is uh, hidden, but the meaning is the same. If you can do such and such, uh, you have the power to do such and such. And so it's not a definition uh, because it is also circular. It doesn't tell us what power means. It just tells us that uh, if we see a specific instance of power, then we can say that there is power. Um, And so the subsequent debate was sort of uh, informed by this uh, fundamental misunderstanding. And so even though many interesting uh, things were said, uh, the question of what power means uh, was not touched uh, uh, at all, right? Because by the, by by sort of by assumption, they were just interested uh, in how power works, uh, in what power does. Which is, again, very important questions, but different and actually, in a way, dependent on the more basic and simple one: uh, what do we mean when we say power?
0: Yeah, I mean. There are, there are a couple of uh, things that really interest me here to follow, but just a note, just a comment about the poverty in English, uh because it's interesting, right? Like uh, when, when you discuss the concept of poverty in different, you know, uh, European languages and you know uh, there is a distinct distinction right like but here when it comes to english it's very messy and interesting that's remind me also uh farsi too farsi similar it's very messy in this sense uh and unclear and you have just power uh and and very uh ambiguous in this sense uh but i like this distinction you you made in the book like for example and this one is potentiality, one is more to the possibility. It's completely, like it very much makes sense. It was very much clear that how that's the language also kind of barrier in this sense, like um, thinking that way. Uh, yeah,
1: if I may say something about that, like what, one that I take to be one of the fundamental points uh, or discovers of the book uh, is sort of the split uh, between uh, uh, power and potentiality or potency, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is very much confused in the current literature. Actually, there are a few scholars uh, that have tried to argue that uh, potentiality or potentia is the more authentic concept of power against uh, domination or whatever. But I think instead that the deepest point is that uh, when uh, Aristotle and to some extent Plato used uh, in their own way and sort of uh, shifted the meaning of the Greek. Uh, dunamis, which then passed uh, in the Latin uh, uh, Christian philosophical tradition as uh, potentia, uh, they did something to the concept of power that influenced our capacity to uh, explicitly understand it, right? And what they did uh, was to take power, dunamis meant, amongst other things, power in Greek and and also had the connection with the possibility, because that's the same uh, noun of the verb, that expresses possibility, but they shifted it by adding this idea of a telos. So a real, a true dynamis or potentia, is the one that is oriented toward one specific end, or in some cases multiple ends, but in any case it is oriented toward an end, toward a telos. And that creates a lot of uh, confusion, because uh, instead, one of the fundamental uh, attributes uh, of power, as we would understand it in politics, ordinary life, uh, is precisely that the end uh, is uh, sort of all. Right? We are the actors or agents that decide of the end. And so there is no predetermined end. And that sort of distances uh, power as based on the category of possibility from uh, potentiality as it passed into the tradition. And now the uh, quirk of English is, which I think uh, actually I spoke once uh, with someone who knew uh, Farsi, uh, who had Farsi as their uh, uh, first language, it's similar in Farsi, is that English got power from uh, one language uh, and the modal verbs uh, can and might uh, from another language, uh, French and German. Uh, and so what happened is that you use power uh, Only as a noun. And so you lose the connection in a way with the modality of possibility. And also you use power to translate uh, uh, potencia or dunamis as well, which creates more confusion. Instead, languages like Italian or French uh, uh, or Spanish uh, are more clear because they maintain the power and potentiality is clearly distinct, uh, and they never use the same word. Mm. For example, uh, uh, an engine has power in English, uh, but it has uh, potenza, or in Italian, or puissance uh, in uh, French. Uh, because, of course, that is not uh, the same power that you can have. It's a different kind of power. is uh, the horsepower, which is oriented toward moving uh, the car. It's different. Uh, In English, this is lost. Uh, And so the the, the, the sort of uh, brief overview of different languages helps to highlight uh, this uh, conceptual distinction between power and potentiality, which is less evident in English. And also, again, the connection with the uh, category or modality of possibility, which is very clear in these languages, uh, but lost uh, in a way or hidden in uh, English. However, I must also say that, the, the the discussion around power in French and Italian is just as confused, if not more, as it is in English. So that clearly is not the only thing that is going on. But it is a thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, but I'm thinking, like, the, the, some of these confusions of uh, perhaps due to, you know, ambiguities in language and also about the practice, is something like you you mentioned like in potentiality you have a telos right, and most of the time like in terms of the also power agency, there is always not teleology in a different sense, but there is orientation. But you can you can say like there is a teleology, but it's not with a, a determinate end right, uh, and and that I think that's that's a major problem and a confusion perhaps in this sense like you you always thinking that your action is intentional towards something, yeah. but but if you define that something then you you are necessarily right uh confined to that action or determined by that action, and you lo- you, you lose your agency and I think that's very yeah. paradoxical as you mentioned uh in this sense yeah.
1: yeah i mean you're you're asking great questions but you're delving uh, deep uh, into the philosophical weeds, so I'm not sure how the listener will be able to keep up. But I I think uh, you hit a very important uh, point because there is this idea, sort of standard idea, that every action is teleological and every action is intentional or defined by its intentionality, uh, which in many ways goes back to Weber. You can also find various trends of analytic philosophy that really insist on intentionality. Um, But I think that the deepest point is that, uh, again, we couldn't conceive of ourselves uh, as intentional and teleologically oriented uh, actors uh, if we were not uh, and we did not perceive to be in a condition of power, Mm -hmm. right? There is this sort of picture of the standard uh, liberal individual uh, with a will, uh, and that is his freedom, uh, which is actually not liberal, but goes back uh, to the Christian tradition, uh, Augustine, etc. It's a very complex genealogy, but there is this sort of idea which really comes into its own uh, in the modern uh, free individual, uh, and that becomes the sort of uh, basic ground uh, on which we construct our theories of action uh, and then politics, etc. But I think that by observing uh, power and its meaning, uh, one can get uh, at least uh, a strong uh, hint that the more fundamental uh, uh, factor is uh, the condition of power, and then from there we can construct ourselves as as intentional uh, beings and not vice versa. And so intentionality and the capacity to act teleologically are certainly implied uh, by power, but are not preconditions of it, right? Mm-hmm. Now this goes beyond the mere uh, uh, endeavor of defining the concept, and it's more about uh, co- more complex and contentious uh, philosophical points. But I think that uh, a proper understanding of power as grounded in a category of possibility at least uh, opens up uh, the horizon for this kind of uh, reflection, which can, uh, you know, can be can make interesting contribution uh, to our uh, sort of standard way of uh, seeing ourselves uh, as uh, politically active beings.
0: Yeah, I think you made a great point uh specifically about the power like as a condition in chapter the last chapter you you delve into this uh in more detail and I think that's very important when we started thinking usually we started as thinking as this individual atoms in 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 the void and exactly perhaps one of the reason that's why there is a you know there is a tendency, um, the common tendency to objectify the poverty in this, in this kind of reified form, and I think you mentioned this in relation to, uh, for example, the some of your criticism to the doll and uh, others of this reification of uh, poverty, which which was which which was interesting to me because I, I read I read uh, this uh, also in terms of the lukachian critique of reification and, and also lukach emphasis on praxis it, it was interesting like uh I, I might need this kind of i i, I don't know like the, if they really the book didn't really delve into that but uh i had this uh reading too which was really interesting it seems that there is exactly this kind of a split right between these theories and the part of action, you know, act activity or the praxis what's happening, and that's perhaps one of the reasons as this, this model of thinking in as this individual and in void and uh, the reification yeah. cover.
1: Yeah, I mean, I haven't really explored this, uh, but I, I think uh, in the sort of critique uh, of verification uh, in Marx uh, and in subsequent Marxism, uh, there is a point of contact uh, or, or a possible avenue. To get uh, to this understanding of uh, power as a basic uh, categorical condition uh, um, that makes possible for us uh, uh, to be agents. At the same time, of course, uh, there is also a rather strong uh, uh, philosophy of history, which is itself uh, a modern transformation of a teleological way of thinking. And so there is this uh, this tension uh, in Marx uh, and also in subsequent Marxist thinkers uh, between uh, the realm of freedom that should be the realization of uh, communism uh, and the idea that history is uh, uh, determined by a sort of inner logic that unfolds as a potentiality. And so there is this sort of split view in which we, we go from uh, history, or perhaps prehistory, which is necessary, and then suddenly with the revolution uh, uh, we arrive to this domain of freedom, which remains unclarified. Part, not all, but part of the problem is also that there is not an explicit analysis of power as such, and so power often appears uh, as the power of the state or the power of the capitalist class uh, that uses the state to keep the workers down, and so you only mm, emphasize certain aspects of power. And so freedom once again uh, becomes opposite to power, much like in the standard liberal picture. And that makes you unable uh, to actually theorize and understand and conceptualize uh, what a domain of free action would look like. And so you end with these sort of dreamlike scenarios in which uh, you are a fisherman uh, in the morning, uh, a critic in the evening, uh, and something else in between, uh, which sounds exhausting, but uh, in any case, is not very realistic.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, 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 get your point. I think that's that's. uh, Actually, I read that passage. uh, You know, my my interpretation of passage is marks criticism of division of labor, uh, which. Yeah, I mean more than so regarding the power, but you know, how the you know the economic divide the human activities and complementarize this you know into you know separate realms and is it as a form of alienation. Uh, so I I read this through that lens, but that's that's reading is also interesting. Like I mean, I, I don't want to really uh go in tangent tangential but for, from the main point of the book because in chapter 2 you provide the reader with a clear right clear definition of this concept of power maybe we can you know unpack this so you write uh, as as a definition of power quote a person's condition of having available possibility for effective action while representing these possibilities as such Uh, Could you unpack this for us? What do you mean? Yes, yes. So
1: there is the idea that this is a condition uh, inherent to a person when we speak about power in political and interpersonal terms. Of course, again, there are different meanings of the word power, but power, as we speak in politics, uh, is always the power of a person. That goes against uh, Uh, particularly the Foucauldian line of impersonal power, power without a face, etc. But the the disagreement is uh, definitional, not practical, right? Because I'm not denying that, of course, the power that we may have uh, is influenced uh, also by many structural uh, elements. Uh, I'm just saying that those are different concepts. and we may want to call them with the same word, but we have to be clear not to confuse them. So is the condition of a person, which comes uh, essentially from the etymology of power, like connected to the modality of possibility. And so is uh, the I can, or I may, or I am able to, which makes the power. Without that, uh, there is no power. I, I, I am not powerful if I cannot right? By definition. Um, but uh, at the same time, there is a, a sort of a double possibility which has to be considered because power is not just equivalent to possibility. Possibility, in fact, can also be used in a purely objective way that has nothing to do with uh, persons and actors. Instead, it's this double application of possibility, which uh, in a simplified way we can think of as objective and subjective although in the book I also explain that this is not entirely satisfactory in the sense that uh, we objectively have possibilities in the world, like I have the the objective possibility of raising from this chair, but uh, we also represent uh, these possibilities as such, uh, which is meant to cover all those cases in which uh, our own representations uh, uh, does not recognize possibilities that we might objectively have, right? Mm -hmm. So there could be very different examples, but one simple example is, uh, for example, if you are a Marxist, you think that the potential for revolution is always uh, in the working class. But in order to make that possibility a real power, they have to sort of, uh, um, you know, uh, break free from ideology, organize, et cetera, which means recognizing their own possibilities. And then the power become uh, real power. Before, they are the same people in the same social condition, but they don't really have the power because perhaps they perceive uh, the order of society as natural and impossible to change or for whatever other reason, right? Mm -hmm. Or even in a singular uh, interpersonal relation, right? Oftentimes there are many things that we do that are just uh, perceived as necessary, right? So, you know, we go, we go to our uh, college, we meet in the hallway, and we say, hello, how are you? Because that's just what people do, right? That's the possibility of, uh, I don't know, punching the other person. In most cases, it is not really perceived as such. It is certainly possible. There is not a physical that prevents that from happening, but it's not what we usually perceive as possible, because we have, uh, you know, we have a certain upbringing, we have certain moral concerns, we have certain social constraints that tells us to behave in a certain way. So many things that are objectively possible in different contexts are not perceived as possible. And only when uh, the representation and the objective uh, effectuality come together we can probably say that we have uh, power, right? Um, Or maybe a better example, a more political example, but also a more ordinary one than the revolution is uh, when, uh, for example, uh, an executive uh, says uh, that they cannot do such and such, uh, even if it is in their power as defined by the constitution and the law because of some factors, right? for example, because there would be a very negative reaction from the public or because it would wreck the economy or because, uh, you know, in the European Union, there's always this uh, uh, ping pong between the national government that says, Europe made me do it, and the European level that says, well, we don't actually have the power to do it because the national government had to agree. And it's like, it's true. I mean, it can be true. It's not always true, but it can be true that uh, even if you have the power in a certain sense, uh, for example, as defined uh, institutionally, you don't necessarily are in the position to make that power effective because uh, from your particular point of view as an individual actor, that possibility appear foreclosed, right? Mm -hmm. But then sometimes uh, the next guy become president and you discover that it was actually very possible you know you can think of some recent examples of things that we didn't think were possible but actually were very possible you just uh, you just needed uh, to elect someone uh, with uh, very few inhibitions
0: yeah and that's and also that's that's what looks like a little bit uh both like promising and scary uh like let's say what happened in Argentina right like like there is a backlash about this impossibility or a powerlessness, perhaps what you're saying that to me, going back to your example about European Union uh, and this national government, it seems that this dynamics very much uh, provided the conditions of people feeling or seeing themselves the, the foreclosure of this presentation of the possibilities to them. And perhaps it's one of the reasons, maybe. I mean, we can't like this do this mechanical, like, uh, causal analysis of that, but maybe one of the reasons of this kind of a backlash in Brexit, uh, in a certain way, this goes back to this idea of people feeling powerlessness, uh, because, yeah, yeah,
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Like they say, yeah, like our government by you know, by our tradition and laws all, has all these powers, uh, including, for example, the power to control immigration, but uh, we cannot exercise it because of the European Union. This though is a different example because it has to do with the explicit rule that limits uh, how power can be used. What I was thinking of uh, was more the way in which it is represented, right? And so they they say like, the, the Government could say, "Well, I could do that, uh, but actually that wouldn't work uh, with Europe, uh, which may or may not be true, may or may not what the politician believe, uh, but it is a representation of something that is possible uh, in an objective sense, uh, but uh, might be um, not might not be an actual possibility because it is not represented as such, right um, Another example. Think of the uh, banking crisis uh, in the European Union uh, after the financial crisis, right? Was it possible for the European Central Bank uh, to do all the things that it did uh, to save the euro, basically starting to partially uh, socialize European debt to a certain degree? It didn't seem possible, it didn't appear possible until uh, Mario Draghi decided that, they would go that way. And then it became possible. The, tra- the treatises, uh, the rules didn't change. The practical empirical functioning of the banking system and of all the people in it didn't change either. There were just these uh, action that uh, opened up uh, a possibility that wasn't there before, right? But it was there before in an objective sense except that it wasn't represented as such uh, by the people uh, who were in the position to make it happen, Mm -hmm. right? And again, this can be all sorts of uh, power play as well, like the representational elements uh, is very important in the way in which uh, power gets uh, fought for, obtained, and lost, because politicians and influential people uh, uh, play all sorts of games. Uh, in which the public also play a part, you know, what we are willing to believe or what we are not willing to believe. Uh, it's a very important part, and, and it is about power in a very, well, even if it is purely representational, it's it's about power in a very concrete sense. And, you know, it's not like this is not studied. It is studied, but we cannot really uh, recognized uh, systematically how it is about power if we don't have uh, a definition of power that is capable of uh, integrating this element.
0: Yeah, I mean, this this seems to me like, uh, I mean, to me, uh, you know, uh, it's symptomatic, uh, perhaps, politics. I mean, problem with the politics today are uh, very much the shift. From let's say politic as a realm of power to the politic as the management perhaps or administration or it's it's not just in the government but in other all institutions universities included like exactly like how this university used to function, and right now very much most of you know uh the views given to the faculty and they're yeah. given right now to the administration it becomes more. Uh, to this, you know, bureaucratic apparatus, which which seems that when, when you're looking from that uh, lens, I mean, there is no possibility left. Yeah. I mean, everything is just mechanic, mechanically, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, like the
1: university <laughs> president or provost or administrator always has a reason why it is absolutely necessary that this is the only thing that we can do, right? Yeah, That's what the administrator always say. Um, And to some degree, they say that uh, so that they can, they don't have to fight for their power every time. Uh, But to some degree, it's also that the system becomes more and more uh, self-perpetuating and the actual available possibility diminish, right? This is a sort of a practical version of the philosophical uh, aversion to power. Right, because as you were saying before, like power is scary. It is. It's scary. It's anxiety-inducing. Like anything could happen—not well, anything, but a lot of different things could happen. Right, and that is difficult to deal with. And so there is always a tendency, either theoretically or practically, to sort of channel and limit power, which, to some degree, is healthy. Uh, But uh, it can become unhealthy when the limitation of power becomes the obliteration of power. And so things just become automatic. Uh, And again, this is not something new. This is a diagnosis that you can find in all sorts of uh, authors, uh, going back even to Marx, uh, but, you know, certainly Habermas, uh, uh, contemporary critical theory, uh, everywhere. But... uh, the, so the contribution that I try to make is not uh, about the empirical diagnosis. It's about the sort of conceptual framework to understand it. And the conceptual framework is that uh, power uh, in this uh, openness to possibility is always problematic, is always difficult, is always scary. And so, of course, uh, there are many occasions in which it seems very desirable to limit it and transform it into a sort of uh, oriented potentiality that just goes according to its own logic. Uh, and then, except then, people are all uh, up in arms because they feel powerless, right? And, you know, at a, at a, at a basic, uh, simple, but fundamental level, I think it's the same uh, uh, the same fear, the same anxiety, the same scare that that Plato felt uh, when uh, the Athenians people killed uh, Socrates. is this thing like, yeah, horrible things can happen. So let's just try to make it going in the direction that we think uh, is the correct one, uh, and that's the only one. Except that uh, people don't want to be powerless. People do want to be free. And that means also powerful. And that Always uh, recreates uh, conflicts uh, and problems, and it's uh, unavoidable.
0: I want to very much uh, brought up this uh, this paradox you mentioned about this paradoxical identification, right, uh, with freedom with the absence of power, very much, right? And specifically in liberal tradition, but yeah. I mean, it's so commonplace nowadays. This is uh...
1: yeah, yeah. So there is this idea. That power just means the power over someone. Yeah. So in practical terms, uh, for the most part, uh, is the power of the state over their citizens. And so, in a sort of standard liberal framework, you have uh, the private uh, citizen, you have the public uh, state, uh, and uh, the issue for from a liberal point of view is. Uh, how to leave the private as free as possible from the control of the state, from the power of the state, because by power they just understand the the control from above. Problem with this is that uh, by implicitly opposing power to freedom, uh, then uh, you get to a point in which uh, absolute freedom uh, is uh, absolute powerlessness. which obviously doesn't make any sense, right? Our exercise of freedom, uh, both at an individual level and at a collective level, right? This transcends the distinction between positive and negative freedom and all that stuff that is not super useful, um, is always also the exercise of power, right? In a practical context, uh, there is an interesting discussion whether power and freedom can be entirely equivalent or not. But regardless of where you fall on that uh, distinction, uh, it is clearly the case that in practice, uh, you cannot have power without freedom uh, and you cannot have freedom without power because the freedom to do nothing is not a freedom. And the power implies that you have the power to do different things, amongst which uh, you can choose. So the two are clearly co-essential, if not uh, even if not the same. So the framing of uh, the state versus the private that is so typical of modern liberalism uh, gradually leads to this uh, absurd uh, result. And since uh, through the conceptual analysis, we can see that the end result is absurd, uh, perhaps we should also question how we understand uh, the premises, right? And then you will see that, you know, this categorical distinction between the public and the private uh, Maybe useful to a certain extent, uh, but they're not really that fundamental because, of course, the public is made uh, by the individual interacting, uh, and the individual never exists uh, as a pure individual, but always uh, in a context uh, with others, right? Uh, and so, yeah, the the sort of uh, analysis of power opens up uh, a way of uh, criticizing. Uh, the sort of standard uh, liberal way of understanding uh, freedom. Again, the critique in and of itself is not new. There are a million different critiques uh, of the standard uh, liberal version of the free individual, but the way in which it is framed uh, through a proper understanding of the concept of power is new. And I think uh, it can go deeper than uh, other uh, perspectives
0: can go. Right. Uh, Yeah, I mean, maybe that's why also there is very much its tendency uh, in liberal thinking to collapsing politics with morality, right? Like, it's very much basing uh, the the premise of politics basically on morality and just uh, very much confined in the paradigm of morality, uh, which yeah which has its own limits, right? uh and I think that's also part of you know seeing this the free i'm uh, in one sense this realm of power, let's say uh the politics and the freedom, the morality seeing... yeah, yeah, because
1: if uh, power is exercised uh, according to morality, then it's okay, mm-hmm. but then it's not power because it's predetermined. And so, if it is exercised instead uh, not according to morality or to any other teleological order, but freely, and then by definition, uh, it is uh, bad, it is evil, right? Mm-hmm. Which again actually goes back to Augustine uh, and his discussion uh, of will uh, and power.
0: Yeah, uh, it's very interesting. Uh, let's talk a little bit about also you know some of these feel like the this the the disciplines like political science because chapter three you uh extensively discussed some of uh um the uh, shortcomings of this you know uh predominant uh, dominant models of uh, analysis uh, political analysis and understanding of power uh although that's, there is no I mean it seems that power is missing uh, in in this most mm-hmm. of these uh, approaches uh, is very much is about this, how the possibility left out, and we end up with necessity uh, or different mod- modalities of necessity. Perhaps like probability is also yeah. in another way. Yeah, c- could you um, yeah yeah expand a little bit about this? Uh... Yeah, perhaps we should make a.
1: You should take a step back uh, and explain that uh, one of the threads of the books uh, of the book uh, is that uh, by understanding power as uh, this sort of double application of the category of possibility, you also understand how there is a sort of conceptual opposition between power and necessity, because of mm-hmm. course, possibility and necessity are opposite. Um, and so that's. Uh, interesting in criticizing the way in which both political science and political theory or political philosophy tend to lose sight of power because they have certain fundamental problems with dealing with possibilities, right? Because possibility, as Aristotle teaches us, like basic open possibility doesn't really lend itself to science science in the sense of true systematic knowledge, uh, not just modern science but also Aristotelian science, uh, needs uh, certainty and therefore necessity, right? Mm -hmm. So only of the necessary there can be true science. Of the purely contingent uh, there is no science, there is no real knowledge. This basic assumption uh, Embedded uh, into Western uh, and not only Western thought, um, let's say West Mediterranean thought, <laughs> uh, uh, this basic assumption carries on in different forms. And so when you get uh, to, we were discussing before liberalism uh, and modern political theory, uh, the idea is that uh, there has to be a certain necessary orientation toward good or evil.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But in the case of political science, uh, there has to be a certain kind of empirical necessity because otherwise we wouldn't be a science, right? And so you have to explain uh, how and why things happen the way they do in politics. And that is uh, overwhelmingly understood uh, as uh, a causal explanation. So you have to put together the various causes uh, that lead uh, to the effect, right? And this can be done uh, in the more sort of uh, empirical, quantitative way that is more and more dominant, uh, particularly in the English-speaking world. Uh, can also be done in more qualitative and narrative and historical ways. Uh, uh, but there is this uh, basic assumption which is very widely shared that uh, uh, a scientific explanation of politics is a causal explanation. Some go even as far as saying that any explanation is a causal explanation. And so what is causality? Interestingly, causality was sort of uh, confused with power, again by Robert Dahl uh, when he was uh, discussing his things in the 60s, but causality, plainly, doesn't have the same meaning as power, even though they are connected, because, of course, power is also always the power to cause some effects, uh, but it's not the same as causation. Um, And instead, causation, in whatever form, and I discuss various different uh, philosophical ways of understanding causation, there could be more, but of course the space is limited in every book, but all of them share uh, the connection with uh, necessity, because uh, a causal connection has to be a necessary connection, otherwise uh, we wouldn't call it causal. For example, if we say that uh, smoking uh, causes uh, cancer, we're not saying that uh, if you smoke, uh, you may or may not randomly get cancer. We're either saying that in a specific case, it was the smoking that causes cancer, or we are saying that that, uh, smoking causes a statistical increase of the probability of having cancer. But in both cases, there must be a necessary connection because if it was just contingent, if it was just random, uh, then we wouldn't say that one causes the other. Hmm. Now, so therefore, uh, political science, uh, adopting the model of science in general, wants to be causal, wants to be about necessity, because otherwise there wouldn't be anything to do science about. The problem is that if necessity and necessary connections are all that we have, then there is no possibility.
0: Yeah.
1: And therefore, there is no politics either which is a little problematic uh, from the point of view of the science of politics. Perhaps uh, sociology or anthropology or uh, any other social science uh, could be fine with that. But trying to make a science of politics that is ultimately incapable of conceptualizing power as possibility is uh, contradictory. And it is contradictory in a a very internal sense. It's not just something that I'm saying as a critic, uh, because, of course, political science also at the same time assumes the perspective of the political actor, right? So the way in which the causality is described is the kind of causality that someone can intervene on to do something else, because they also want to be a practical science, right? But it's contradictory, because if, if only causality is your governing category, you have no possibility. And so the plea for political science... Uh, 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 in general, is uh, to be open to a multiplicity of approaches. Because there are certain elements that can be studied from a causal perspective, but it can never be the only perspective. Because if it is, then there is no space to conceptualize of power, and therefore there is no political question to be had, and there is no science of politics because there is no politics, right? Or rather, we don't have the conceptual capacity to understand uh, politics as a specific domain, and therefore our science uh, has no domain of study, right? Now, one possible way to try to uh, weasel out of this uh, conundrum is to say, well, but of course, uh, there is a space for possibility, and that is through the use of probability, which deals not with certainties, uh, but with things that are only possible. And so, in the second part of the chapter, I'm going to uh, prolong the exam examination of probability, both from a mathematical perspective and from the perspective of philosophical interpretations, to show that ultimately, probability is not really about possibility, but is also about necessity. It's a more complex way of uh, uh, framing uh, uh, necessity, but it's still. Uh, Necessity, because basically the various different interpretations of probability all leads to the idea that to simplify, what a probability does is to describe a necessary distribution of results. So you may not know with certainty what the result is, but you know with certainty, with necessity, the sort of distribution of results. Right. To summarize in a short formula we can explain the difference by saying that uh, whereas power denotes the certainty of a possibility, so when we say that we have power, we are certain that things are possible for us, probability on the other hand describes the uncertainty of something necessary, right? And so they don't really cover the same domain and therefore probability that is so ubiquitous uh, in the contemporary study of political science uh, is not really an avenue to introduce possibility in the sense that is relevant to understand power, but just another way of developing uh, the logic of uh, necessity uh, and necessary causal connections. And so, again, the problem for political science uh, is that in the overwhelming majority of the field, uh, which also includes uh, various uh, non-quantitative approach, being so focused on causality, they have no space to conceptualize power, and therefore uh, they don't really have a space to conceptualize their own object of study, which is uh, politics.
0: Exactly that—that that was the point, actually, Vilain. Right, like you are actually looking for these correlation, in which uh, and distribution to to find some sort of exactly certainty uh, and talking about perhaps
1: you can make it a little more concrete uh, for the audience uh, like to understand what is the sort of internal problem right mm-hmm. because there are many criticisms of political science uh, and of the reliance of empirical quantitative models that say well this doesn't really work in practice that's not my criticism though my criticism is that There is an internal contradiction in that they, at the same time, presuppose politics and power while not leaving space for them in their conceptual apparatus. So for example, there are many studies, uh, especially in the US, uh, of the way in which uh, different demographics uh, react uh, to different circumstances, uh, right, and therefore uh, with the implication that if you are for example a campaign strategist or a politician you can use this data in order to craft the course of action that is better for you to win right but if we think about what this is this is the positing of a fundamental split between the politician and the campaign strategist and the rest of the unwashed uh, masses. Because the unwashed masses uh, are explained uh, causally yeah. and therefore probabilistically, whatever, but through necessity, whereas the campaign strategies is the actor, is the scientist that can make the natural experiment by changing one or another variable and see how the mass of the people uh, reacts, right? Now, one could say that this is morally problematic uh, and I think it is, but even if it is not morally problematic, uh, the point is that uh, there is this completely unjustified assumption uh, that uh, the people belong to one universe uh, that function according to a certain uh, logic, uh, whereas uh, the political scientist and the campaign manager belong to a different universe uh, that function according to the logic of freedom and power. And even if you think that that's fine uh, from a moral point of view, it is clearly absurd uh, from a philosophical point of view, from a theoretical point of view, because we are both uh, people, both the political scientists and the campaign strategists. Yeah, but, but again, my point is not a sort of substantive criticism, because you could say, well, that's fine. But what is not fine is that it implies an ontological split that has no justification whatsoever. We all belong to the same universe. We all interact with one another. And so if you have to sort of covertly, implicitly posit an ontological distinction between one man and another man, there is a problem there. Yeah. But you have to do that, because you do want to be useful for politics, therefore for power and action, while at the same time uh, being informed uh, by the category of necessity.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is, this is something very interesting, uh, this kind of, this re- reduction of the realm of this possibility the let's say, the representation um uh, to this uh facticity or this kind of ontology category uh perhaps uh which is which which is interesting I, I I very much learned about this from your book, but also this is the case in the field of you know I'm an art historian and in art as well like from certain you know uh point very much art also tended to uh, just dismiss representational aspect of itself. Uh, and, and this is interesting, like from 1960 onward, uh, very much this question of the representation is, uh, I mean, very much not diminished, but less as a viable, uh, way of thinking about this aesthetic dynamics. And 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 probably there might be some connection. I really don't know. Like, but this is very interesting to um uh, think about and and also you you've been in the discussion you mentioned about this idea of uh power and the, the fear and fearsomeness of it. It's very much I was thinking at, at the same time, I was thinking uh about Edmund Burke, right? Like we have Edmund Burke uh in his uh book about this philosophy incurred the origin of the or ideas of the sublime beauty. He actually split this into beauty and sublime. And sublime is this representation of power versus beauty, uh, which which I yeah, which I mean to what extent I could we agree or not, but seems there is a connection, right? Like I think Edmund Berg very much think about. This relationship between representation and power, uh, because there is close uh, correlation here. While while uh, today it seems as we are less and less intent to this, uh, not thinking about this representation, and maybe this something has to do with to this public sphere. Because in the last chapter you very much uh, discuss uh, this concept of representation what what do you mean i I want to ask you what really exactly this representation is? maybe my understanding of representation is a, a bit different uh because I'm thinking more toward this idea of uh representation as a theory of mimesis you know this has a long history in art, but still it's a intersubjective realm yeah uh, I was thinking that what you are coming close to me, reminding me to some extent, this ideas that might be shared in art as well. Uh, yeah. Yeah, wh- wh- why do you think about this aspect of representation? Maybe that also has to do with this, uh, why the power as a condition of this possibility becomes less and less, I don't know, uh, plausible or it's something left out. Yeah. It is a very difficult question,
1: both uh, because uh, art uh, and aesthetics uh, fall beyond uh, my uh, expertise uh, and because, in general, the concept of representation uh, is even more difficult uh, to define uh, clearly than power is. Uh, I mean, ironically, power is actually relatively simple to define, if you just uh, get rid of certain philosophical preconception. Uh, Representation is even uh, more basic uh, for for, for our mind, uh, for the functioning of our mind. So it's harder to actually define in an explicit way. Um, But uh, yes, I I think that representation is key. Uh, Representation and the faculty of judgment, which is uh, intrinsically connected uh, to the capacity to represent. Because basically, it is this very basic uh, capacity that we have to, that we have to make up things in our mind, right? We can represent uh, things, uh, states of affairs, uh, things that can be done to us or that we can do to others, more or less uh, independently from uh, external uh, reality, Right at least from our experiential, phenomenological point of view, there is this split between the physical reality and uh, the images uh, that we can represent in our mind. Now, again, I don't know whether ultimately there is some sort of determinism that we could perhaps uh, explain some way. I don't wanna go into these debates, but certainly from a phenomenological, experiential point of view, There is this uh, split. And this capacity to think representationally is what makes uh, contingency and possibility available for us, is what makes us uh, the sort of being uh, that is open to possibilities. Because we don't just uh, react uh, to external uh, stimuli, but we also react uh, what's going on in our mind, uh, which to some degree can be detached from uh, our appraisal of the external world, right? And so we can say, well, things could be different. Or we can say, well, now I'm making uh, a new object of art that has never been done before. We can say, you know, we can criticize because we can imagine things as different from what they are. And all of this uh, is the opening up of possibilities uh, which would not be possible if we weren't uh, the kind of being uh, that makes representations, right? So, yeah, absolutely. It's all uh, connected, although tracing the connection in a more serious way goes uh, uh, beyond my power because I just don't know enough uh, in enough uh, fields. Uh, But at the same time, uh, you know, it's all open for someone else uh, who wants to run uh, further with this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, that's a really complex question. Yeah. Uh, but I grapple really, when I was reading your book, it was always in my, in my mind, like there seems, there's some parallels going on here. Uh, and actually I was thinking, uh, you know, through toward the end of the book, I was thinking about this famous quote for uh, it's uh uh, attributed to Frederick Jameson, literary critic, Marxist literary critics, who said that uh, you know in in the current conjuncture it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of the capitalism quote and then this popularized by Mike Fisher but the idea is this is some kind of uh, disempowerment uh, which is very much uh, related to this empowerment of our capacity of imagination uh, which i think very much related to uh, this uh intersubjective field of thinking right like we having this field of representation as a possibility for uh, you know uh collective decision making uh, yeah, absolutely absolutely
1: yeah i mean if you want to if you want to pile up a little more on political science uh, Another of their problem is that the overwhelming majority of the field is quite blind to narratives, right? I mean, they will say that the narrative is important, but there is no like, engagement with what the narrative means. But of course, narrative is, is fundamental in opening up different possibilities, and is not an empirical analysis of how things are. It is instead uh, a sort of story that can show how things could be. Mm -hmm. Again, Aristotle uh, was very aware of this distinction and of the importance of it, uh, but uh, today it seems like something sort of, you know, sort of fluffy and uh, inconsistent. uh, And, and, you know, it could be in certain cases, but but, but it is very important because... uh, if you lose this capacity to make up uh, different stories for how things could be, then you lose the capacity to question uh, the situation as it exists, and so yeah, it becomes that uh, it becomes possible to imagine the end of the world, but not the end of capitalism.
0: Yeah, it's it's which... basically dead end. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Guido, is there any uh, books right now, currently, you're working on, or, or what would be your, you know, future uh, upcoming?
1: Yeah, I'm always slower than I would like to be, but uh, yeah, as you said in the beginning, uh, the sort of longer term project uh, is uh, to do a more uh, historical uh, uh, study of how the concept of power changed. Uh, and was employed by different thinkers in different times and how that feeds uh, into our current uh, understanding and uh, misunderstandings. Um, I would like to be much farther than I am into this project, uh, but I'm really just at the beginning. uh, So I'm afraid I have a, I I don't have anything uh, uh, coming out uh, soon.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um. I mean I, I, I honestly I'm, I'm looking forward specifically to to, to uh, your future book but like this book is really I I, 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 I I can't tell it's how how useful for me, although I'm from a different field like from the background art history I, I actually re- this is just a shout out for art history and go and read this book. This is really helpful to think about art as well uh, and yeah, it's incredible book. Uh, Guido Parietti thank you very much for coming out to the show and happy new year
1: thank you for having me, it was was great and uh, happy new year to you